Well, good morning. As we gather on this Tuesday in the 16th, we get another beautiful sunny day here in Coeur d'Alene. We have some guests with us this, this week from Boise, so thank you very much for your presence here. She's a friend of the divine, Sisters of Divine Grace, up, making sure they're actually working up here. I think that's what's going on. Our, uh, our prophet we hear from today, Micah, what a beautiful writer he is. This is short. He's a prophet of few words, short seven short chapters, and today we're in the last chapter of his work. Micah is a companion of Isaiah, contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah lives in Jerusalem primarily, spends most of his life in and around the big urban center, and Micah does not. Micah's from outside the city. He's from a rural area, but he comes into Judah. He comes into Jerusalem to prophesy a very similar message of Isaiah, and that is that, first of all, Father God is omniscient. He's in power and control of all things, and that when we transgress, we may experience correction and hardship in our lives, that the Lord corrects those that he loves. But he concludes today in his seventh chapter with this confidence in a future with God, confidence in a future of someone who believes in God and understands God. And the language he gives us, shepherd your people with your staff, right? That's a, that's a corrective measure. You shepherd your people with your staff. The shepherd never, never would would uh, harm the animal by striking it abusively, but rather corrected, a slight nudge on the shoulder to get it to move in the right direction. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead in the days of old. It is in the days when you came from the land of Egypt. Show us your wonderful signs. This constancy of God we have, this constancy of provision in our life that the people of Israel knew as they wandered in the desert. The nations will see and will be put to shame in spite of all their strength. Think about that, all this great power we think that individuals have or people are self-assumed of their own omniscience and their own, their own power and might and yet in the end we're brought to dust, we're brought to nothing. As powerful as we think we are individually when we make ourselves God, it's, it's a lie ultimately. We are brought to dust as is true for all humans. But he concludes with this. You will show us faithfulness. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and loyalty to Abraham as you have sworn to our ancestors from days of old. And the great theme today, this seventh chapter, is this constancy of faith, this constancy of God's presence in his life, this constancy of provision. Who is a God like you who removes guilt and pardons sin for the remnant of his inheritance? Who does not persist in anger forever, but instead delights in mercy? A God who delights in mercy. How encouraging is that in our own individual lives? A God who delights in mercy. In Matthew's Gospel, we're at the conclusion of chapter 12, and it's delighting in that mercy and the knowingness of God, the sonship of God that Jesus certainly has, and he's then, we're told in this conclusion of the chapter, we're told that he's been speaking to a large crowd. He's up north, as he is for most of his ministry, he's up north. This is in the first year of his ministry, first year of his public ministry, and we're told by Matthew, while he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers appeared outside. So apparently Jesus is tucked into a home. Excuse me. I'm allergic to life, I think. Jesus tucks into a home and uh, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak with you. And then Jesus just replies, and we can interpret that reply with considerable depth. We can spend time with this short pericope because there's a lot of beauty in this. He says, but he said in reply to those and to the one who told him this, 
He said, well, who? He asked the question, well, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He doesn't offer a snarky response. He doesn't offer a too bad or tell them to go away. He doesn't say that. He just says, well, who are her? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand, he points to his disciples, Matthew tells us, and says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my heavenly father is my brother and sister and mother. So what he's telling us very clearly, it's not blood relation that unites us with Christ. Although we are formed by Christ in the womb, life breathed into the, our mother's womb, we come to be. That is true. But it isn't the DNA, it isn't the blood type that unites us. It's not our ancestry in relation that, that unites us, the family relation. Rather, it's, it's this ancestry in the faith. It's this relationship with Christ that makes us his brother or sister. The fact that we acknowledge him as son of God. And through our baptism, we're born into that new life, that sonship and daughtership in the kingdom. Mark gives us a little bit different telling on this one. He says to us uh, in the same similar pericope, he says his mother and his brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent word to him and called. A crowd seated around, a crowd seated around him said to him, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. But he said to them in the same, you've heard this, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And looking around, he gives the same description. Mark, Mark's gospel preceded Matthew. So Matthew has a copy of Mark's gospel when he writes his. We know that historically. And so he's continuing that same description of events. If we go to John's gospel, that's not on the, the lectionary for today, but in scripture study, it's very useful to chain reference or cross-reference different passages. So we try to understand this family relation of Christ with those around him, and then we apply it to our, our own life. That's, that's one, one goal of scripture study, is to understand its depth and then have life application. And he says to those, uh, those around him, now Jesus, in, now John's gospel, this setting is in the eighth chapter, and John is speaking to the, some very faithful Jews who are around him and recognizing that Jesus, a Jew, grew up in a very faithful Jewish home. That's what, in Luke's gospel, we have the telling of all the practices of Joseph and Mary in Jesus' infancy and in his early life, how they're very observant of the various festivities and practices of the Jewish faith. So Ju Jesus is a very faithful Jew in his upbringing. He is the Son of God and knows who he is. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, clearly. But as a youth, he was very observant of the Jewish practices. But now, as a man in his public ministry, Jesus says this. Jesus then said to those Jews who believed in him, if you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what John is trying to tell them is, I am the way and the truth, and my way is different from the world. John tells us in his seventh chapter, for his brothers did not believe in him. We have to remember Eastern Mediterranean first century cultures, brother was a family notation applied to both uh, sons of the same mother as well as cousin. A brother was a brother. A brother was someone related through family, through cousins, second cousins, third cousins. These were all brothers, same for sisters. These were all brothers and sisters. So Jesus' own cousins, his own relations, don't believe in him. Now, John the Baptist is a cousin, he certainly believes in him, but there were others who did not. In fact, his brother James, his cousin James, brother James in the cultural use of the term, 
didn't believe he was the Lord at first. And James goes on to become this great leader of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension. His own family didn't believe who he was and thought, in fact, he was crazy. In another passage, uh, let me see if I can find it here. In another passage in his, in his gospel, uh, they're concerned for his well-being, thinking that, well, he must be out of his mind because he's preaching words that don't make sense and they came to try to find relief for him. His brothers did not believe in him. Let me see if I can, three, eight, nine. I have too many references. That's another problem with Bible study. Get yourself too deep into this. But he, he, there's a very specific quote in John where he says, we came, his, his family comes to him because they're concerned that he's out of his mind. It's, after he's healed a man and his family comes to his immediacy and says, we're, think, we're concerned for you. Your public ministry is a bit disconcerting. And the question would be, well, were they concerned for him or were they concerned that what he was saying was going to bring scrutiny from the scribes and the Pharisees who were very difficult, very abusive to people they didn't believe were living authentically in the faith. I think perhaps we could argue that, that one of the concerns they had was not for his mental well-being, but rather because of what he was saying was so contrary to what the Pharisees and scribes were preaching. They were concerned for their own well-being and therefore telling him to basically be quiet. How do we apply it to ourselves? We're told in common sense, when you gather for family meals or in company events, you shouldn't talk about politics and, or faith. You shouldn't talk about politics or faith. Well, it turns out that's usually what we do talk about when we gather with family or gather in company settings. And certainly in this country in the last, last year, if not longer, that's been a common theme of when we gather, we don't talk about sports because those aren't being played, right? We, we tend to talk about what's in the news. The news is disconcerting based on what you're observing. My suggestion is this, is <clears throat> we can't separate our faith from our identity as Catholics. Who we are as a person, our individuality, is grounded in the fact that a creator God gave us life and Jesus, his son, is our savior. That our identity as a person cannot be separated from that truth. So when a person, could be a family member, asks us to, or is dismissive of the church, here's perhaps a way to frame our moment. It's our creed. So our creed starts with, as you all know, I believe in one God, Father Almighty. That's the foundation statement. Then we believe in his son, begotten by the Father, born of a Virgin Mary. That's the second statement of our creed, that God entered the human story as a full human, fully divine, fully human, for the salvation of all, an invitation open to all. So those are the two, first two platforms of our identity. Third, we believe in the Holy Spirit, that through Christ's work in his life, through his death on the cross, in his resurrection and ascension, and then he bequeathed the gift of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, into our lives, beginning at Pentecost, and then for all of us in baptism and in our own confirmation, that we live in this relationship with Christ, this fraternal brother and sister relationship with Christ for all eternity. That is our very identity. And then lastly, we have a church that teaches, teaches that truth. 
So when we find ourselves in a difficult conversation and someone says, I don't know why you're all, this whole church thing is just strange or why that's so important to you or the Catholic Church is corrupt, you can just simply say this. This is a suggestion. You'll, you'll find your own words, but a suggestion would be, well, hold on. Just recite the creed, but do it in the Reader's Digest version or do it in the, in the, in the summary of, I believe in God, His Son, born incarnate of Virgin Mary, who died for me, rose, uh, sent His Holy Spirit, and I believe in the church that teaches that. Are there faults in the church? Sure. Are there corrupt people in the church? Since about two hours after the Last Supper, when Judas sold Jesus out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, there's been corruption in the church since the first night. That's true, and has been true for all 20 centuries. But the church teaches the truth of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, incarnate birth, triune God, resurrected Christ. That's what that church teaches. Are there people in it that are not perfect? Absolutely. So to our family members, we can say, listen, I love you by blood. You are my relation. But I can't separate my identity as a person from my identity as a child of God. The two are inseparable. So when you mock my faith or mock my church, it's very wounding to me. So don't ask me to separate the two. I cannot. You're asking for the impossibility. I'd ask you then to walk forward, friend of mine or sister or brother of mine or parent of mine or child of mine. Walk forward in, in your life. You are invited into the same joy that I know. I can't make you believe it. That is your free will choice to accept it. I can't make you believe it. I wish that you would, but it is ultimately your choice once you reach majority. When you're young, you're coming to mass. and That's what we do. When you're older, make your choice. But don't ask me to separate my very personhood from that of a child of God. I cannot, I cannot. The two are inseparable because one is wholly dependent on the other. Therefore, we go forward in faith knowing that the cross many of us bear in our life starts with our family, and family who may be, for various reasons, very distant from their faith or neutral in their faith or not interested in a faith life. That may be, and we pray for them, we hold them up, we hold them up in great empathy because there's a, a joy missing in their life, and more importantly, an eternal glory that potentially is missing in their life that we want them to know. As we go forward in faith, let's be inspired in those words. St. Lawrence of Brindisi, pray for us.